So I heard a story once about this uh, little girl, and she lived on a farm with her grandparents. And uh, she, she, there was a lot of chores to do on that farm, but she wasn't allowed to do a lot of them because she was, she was pretty young. But she figured, there's one job that I can do. I can go weed. I can do some weeding. So one day, she went out to the garden, and uh, she decided to start weeding her grandmother's um, vegetable garden. And unbeknownst to her, she tore up 10 of her grandmother's prized flowers. And so the little girl panicked. What was she going to do? So she decided, oh, I'll just rebury them. It won't be a problem. So she reburies the plants. And as you can imagine, about a week later, the grandmother goes out to the garden and, and sees the plants, and they're withered, and they're dead. And she says to the little girl, do you know what happened to my plants? And the little girl explained what happened. She said, I tried to rebury them. And the grandmother said, those plants won't grow once they've been broken off of the root. Even if you bury them again so that they look like they're part of the root, they lack the nutrition that the attached branches have. Unless the plant remains attached, it will die. And this story is illustrative of our passage today in John 15, where Jesus uses the analogy of a vine to, to describe what true relationship looks like. Unless we remain attached, we too will wither. So to give a little context for this particular passage in John 15, John is really an incredible gospel writer. His gospel um, is different from any of the other gospels in that he focuses on the character of Christ more than the other writers. In John, we see Jesus' famous I am statements. You may recall when Eliza preached um, about I am the bread or last week when Nate talked in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now we're in Jesus' last I am statement, I am the vine. And here in chapter 15, we're in some of John's most tender writing. It's when Jesus is in the, he's in the upper room discourse. So the last weeks of his life. And John summarizes Jesus' entire ministry in one word, abide. The word comes up 53 times in John's writing. Dwell, take in, consume. In Greek, meno, the word, means to remain fast to stay. And abiding Jesus isn't just fixing our attention on him. It's being one with him. We soak him in. We just be with him in full faith, that unseen assurance that he is sufficient. And we can always abide because Jesus is with us as all time, at all times. Hudson Taylor says, a man is abiding just as much when he is sleeping for Jesus as when he is awake and working for Jesus. Oh, it is a very sweet thing to have one's mind just resting there. So the invitational passage, the invitational question in this passage is, what does good relationship look like? What does an abiding relationship look like? So before we dive into that question, we're going to look at the characters in the story. So right away in verse 1, we read, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Or some translations say the gardener. So we know Jesus is the vine, the trellis by which the great plants grow off of, right? By which the branches grow off of. He is what we abide in. And then we meet God, the vine dresser. And he prunes each branch so that it bears much fruit. And he does this in and through love. 
In verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will bear more fruit. So we grow a lot of grapes um, on my farm back in New Hampshire, and I, I honestly love to work with the grapes and harvest grapes with my grandparents. And they're kind of a tedious um, bush, and yet they're durable. And so when the branches are really low to the ground, they often get shielded from the sun, or maybe they'll get a little bit trampled if there's animals out there. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll bring them up into the light and we'll retie them. We'll tie them up to the trellis so that they can grow again. And even if they are on the ground and yet still attached, we will try to guide them back up towards the light. But if they're broken off, we'll throw them away because they'll infect the whole um, rest of the vine. And so the Greek word for prune, kathyro, means to clean, to lift up. Isn't that just what God does with us? He prunes so as to lift us up so that we can bear more fruit. So pruning here is a good thing. It's not discipline. God is life and he is the giver of all life, which means if he gives life, he also takes away death. So pruning takes away something that will not last and replaces it with something that will last. He says in verse 16 that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should last. This is of eternal value, and this process of sanctification is kickstarting that eternal relationship we have with Christ. So then in verse um, 2 and 4, we meet us, the branches, and we must be pruned carefully so as to bear the best fruit. And there are two kinds. There are those that bear fruit and those that don't. And lastly, in verse 5 and 6, we see the fruit. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the fruit here represents the godly words and um, deeds that we do in order to glorify God. And in this context, I believe that it refers specifically to love in that the second half of this passage, John really emphasizes the importance of loving. Richard Foster um, um, says, the fruit of the Spirit is the outward evidence of the inward reality of a heart abiding in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is the outward evidence of the inward reality of a heart abiding in Christ. So it's something that's seen from the outside, but it shows where our loves are directed, where our eternal state is. It's a heart matter. So how will this fruit manifest itself? It will manifest itself by what we love. If we love money, time, people, gambling, traveling, food, you name it, that's where your treasure will be. Your devotion will declare your doctrine. And Christ invites us here to look to him for a definition of holiness. Look to him as the way to attain a fruit that will last. So what is your fruit saying about your life? How is your abiding going? What are you devoting your time and your energy towards? I would invite us to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal where your loves are directed right now. Is it abiding in Christ first? So back to the question. What does an abiding relationship look like? Well, it looks like three things. It looks like grafting, connecting, and loving. The first word, which you'll see up on the screen here, grafting, 
To graft something means that you, you cross-cut a branch and graft it in. So you might think of this with apple trees. You take one um, species of an apple tree and you can actually graft it into another species and create a new species. So it means to reconnect, to join the branches to the original vine. So we are grafted into the vine when we accept Christ into our hearts. Some people call this conversion or our moment of salvation. In Romans 11, Paul compares Israel, the natural branches of a cultivated olive tree, to the new Gentile believers who were the wild branches of the olive tree. And some of the natural branches, Israel, were cut off, and some of the wild branches, the Gentiles, were grafted in. And then the Gentiles could experience the promises and inherit the blessings of God. So to be engrafted into the presence of God is a matter of life or death. Remember that in the beginning, the story with the little girl, when she ripped those flowers up, they died. They, there was no more nutrition feeding them. There was no lifeline of Christ. When we are detached from the root, we also die. So we cannot abide until we are grafted. And part of grafting is that sinful habits have to die. We make space for God in our hearts so that he can work so that he can transform our minds towards things above and not towards our earthly cravings. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, writes, we need to ask God to hack down the old tree, cut off the branches, and throw them into the fire. But in the middle of that hard, messy process, we cannot forget the promise of new life. For we not just confess and disregard the old, but we also proclaim his resurrection power. So we've been grafted we take out that which leads to death, we replace it with the truth of Christ, and then we grow. We've tapped into a new root system. We're building a new lifestyle through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we grow through these, these spiritual practices. We grow through a cycle of dying to self, self-examining, renewing, repenting, abiding. The second word is connecting. So now we've been grafted, now our word is connecting. And there's, there's two ways in which we're connecting, through the word and through presence. In verse 7 he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So I don't mean just memorizing the word here, because even Satan can do that. Scripture to Christ when he's tempting him in, in the desert, right? The demons believe, we can do that. But I mean the word being a throne in our hearts. I mean making space for the word to be living and active in our life. And if the word truly convicts us and helps us and guides us, we would do well to cling to it. By it, we know the Holy Spirit's power and by it, we overcome the evil one. It is a lamp unto our feet. John says to the young Christians in 1 John, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have over, overcome the evil one. So do you see that connection? The word of God abides. We are strengthened by the word, that which is God. And you have overcome, you've conquered the evil one. The devil cannot stand against the indwelling word of God. So we're connected through his word. How else are we connected? We're connected through presence. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So the core teaching is the connection to him. It's not how much fruit. It's not how much fruit you are producing. 
You do not need to demonstrate a level of productivity to be safe from destruction. You need to remain connected to him. And part of this connection is that it takes time for Jesus to not just be an idea, but to be part of who we are, that we are living his example. Through deep listening, prayer, and spiritual practices, we begin to seep in Christ. It's kind of like overnight oats. You know what overnight oats are? I love overnight oats. I think I have a picture up there on the screen. I, uh, oh, it looks so good. I love overnight oats. So overnight oats, basically the idea is that you put oats in uh, milk or water or something and you leave it overnight. Sometimes you can add berries or nuts, honey, peanut butter, you name it. I fill it with all sorts of stuff. And you leave it overnight and then the oats expand. And the only way that oats are actually good for you is if their nutrition, if their nutrients comes out. And they do that by expanding, by being soaked in that liquid. So I got in this overnight oats kick uh, last spring. And I came home from college. And I was making overnight oats every day. And I would add, I'd add something like that, some peanut butter, maybe some chia seeds, blueberries, all sorts of stuff. And unbeknownst to me, my mom had also started making overnight oats. And I, I had no idea about this. But I'd grab my overnight oats every morning and I'd go to work. And after a time, I realized, well, as the days went on, I realized that the overnight oats were really not tasting like I thought they would, like I had made them. Because I used to add all this stuff, and the, and the oats were chewy, the chia seeds were not soft, the honey was all sticking to everything. It was terrible. It was not, it had not sat overnight, and I didn't know why. So after about two weeks, my mom's sitting at the dinner table, and she starts going off about how great her overnight oats have been tasting. <laughs> and I'm like... Well, that's funny because mine have been tasting a whole lot worse. And so come to find out, my mom had been taking mine in the morning and then making a fresh batch and leaving it right that morning, which is the one I was grabbing. And so it was tasting terrible because it hadn't sat. It hadn't seeped. So the point is this. Without just letting it sit, the flavors doesn't, don't come out, nor the nutrients. You can't speed it up. You can't speed up the process. You can't mix it enough. It has to take time. No nutrients if it's not soaked. And what a difference between the two batches. How different for believers who are feeding on Christ daily in his word, in his presence, who are abiding in him like a branch in the vine, to those who live their lives devoted to temporal cravings. They're not living a nutrient-dense life. There's no honey. There's no healthy fats. There's no nuts. There's no fruit. It's empty. We're being defined by our fruit when we're not first abiding in him. The scriptures say your words are like honey. Are you tasting his word like honey? Or are you just a grab-and-go type of Christian? How are you soaking in Christ? Are you doing... Are you being with him and adoring him, letting all the rich flavors come out in your life so that your fruit is rich and tasteful? The third word is loving. In verse 9 through 13, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. 
Loving here is a beingness. How do you know if I am in you, he says, and you in me? How you love, by how you love. So abiding here is twofold. There's a vertical aspect of our love and a horizontal aspect. So we are being fed by Christ when we first abide in him. He is our lifeline. And then that love overflows into our love for others. So part of loving others is by loving him. When we abide with others, we are abiding with him. It's kind of like how they tell you on an airplane to put your own oxygen mask on before you put on the person next to you or whatever. Which as a kid, I was always like, no, that's so mean. You should help your child first. But at (laughs) at the end of the day, if you're not fed and strengthened and being oxygenated, I don't know if that's a word. If you're not receiving oxygen, you won't be able to give oxygen to someone else. So first we abide in the vertical and then in the horizontal. He says, if the Father loves me and I love you, remain in my love. And if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. And what is my command? Love one another. It's this circle. How are we living out our calling to abide together? Only through Jesus' power can we love, can we reorder those relationships. If we understand, if we truly understood how God loves us, wouldn't we understand our call to love others better? Jesus says the entire law hinges on these two things. You can do X, Y, and Z. You can do all the fruit stuff. That's great. But at the end of the day, if you're not loving, is that truly what an abiding relationship looks like? And doing as he commands is not a bad thing here. It might sound harsh. This is my command, love. Are you remaining in my love? Do as I command. But it will never bear bad fruit to listen to God's command. If we are truly listening to him, this is not a harsh command. This is an invitation to a life with Christ rather than a a must do or die. Jesus doesn't want that attitude. We are invited to remain in him and experience a love beyond our expectation. It's such an adventure. That's the vertical. And then we're commanded to love one another with that same love. We don't even have to come up with the love. He's already given us the example. He's already given it to us. That's the overflow. So why do we love? We love because he is truly the life. And if he is, then we would do well to cling to that. If a doctor said, if you don't do this thing, you will die, we would probably listen to the doctor and figure out what we had to do. He knows what's best. We would just listen because we're not the expert. God is the expert on love. He is love. And he knows what it means to give love and give it in an everlasting manner. We also love because he chose to do this. He chose us to bear fruit. We have been grafted, we've been connected, and now we are called to love. In light of these truths, do these words describe your relationship with God? How is your vertical aspect? And then how are you expressing your love for others? What is he calling you to get rid of that's actually in the way of this invitation to life? whatever idol, whatever love you're directing at, are you, are you soaking in all that nutrients first? Are you letting it sit overnight, sitting in his word, sitting in his presence? Where am I directing energy to a fruit that won't last? He says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another.